The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 and 22 through 31. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated, and good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. Everywhere that the gospel message goes, it turns things upside down. And today we're going to be looking at Acts 15 and a significant moment in the early church, really a significant moment in all of church history, where things get turned upside down for some Jewish Christians who put too much of their confidence in keeping the customs of Moses. In Acts chapter 15, we read about what is referred to as the Jerusalem Council. And it's an important moment in church history for many reasons. 
There was the theological debate itself, which was crucial for crystallizing the core of the Christian faith. There was also the method for how they resolved this theological issue. And then there was the care and wisdom shown in executing and communicating the decision of the council. You know, all sorts of important stuff happens through this chapter in Acts. And so we're going to be looking a little more closely at the Jerusalem council. And as we do, we will have three points. The dissension, the council, and the accord. And so let's begin with our first point, the dissension. In our passage, there is a dissension that arises in the early church over a theological issue. And there are two sides to it. And so on the one hand, you have Paul and Barnabas, and they have been sharing the gospel with all sorts of people, but especially with Gentiles, non-Jews. And that's what many of the previous chapters in Acts have been about. And uh, there's been a large number of Gentiles who have converted, and that's welcome news, actually. You know, verse 3 of our passage says that they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. The conversion of the Gentiles is bringing joy to people as they share this news. And so Paul and Barnabas are like, great, we've seen all these conversions. We've seen Gentiles being saved. They're now a part of our new community, the church. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Glad that's settled. But then there are some other people who are like, whoa, 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 Paul and Barnabas, not so fast. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Or verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. They're like, that's great, Paul and Barnabas, about all the Gentiles who are believing, but um, have they been circumcised? Have they begun keeping the law of Moses? Because if they haven't, and if they don't start, then they're not saved. And that's where this dissension arises from, a theological question. A theological question. When Gentiles believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and convert— do they need to be circumcised and begin keeping the law of Moses to be saved? Paul and Barnabas say no, but some men from Judea and some believing Pharisees say yes. Now, before we get much further, we should briefly talk about what exactly circumcision and keeping the law of Moses have to do with one another and what they mean. And so first of all, Practicing circumcision is often a sort of shorthand way of saying keeping the customs of Moses, keeping the law of Moses. You know, Paul actually writes in Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And so there's this sense that they go together. You can't just separate out circumcision and forget the rest of it. That's not really a category. Uh, and so this debate is using the specific custom of circumcision as a sort of shorthand way of saying all the customs, all the law of Moses. And I also should probably clarify that circumcision, the customs of Moses, the law of Moses should not be confused with the moral law, the Ten Commandments and the things that flow from them. That's not, is, that's not what is at issue here. Circumcision, the customs of Moses, the law of Moses were laws specifically for the nation of Israel, things that made them distinct 
from other nations. It made them distinct as a people group with one true God, Yahweh. And so these things are things like circumcision, obviously, uh, but also things like ritual cleanliness laws and ceremonial laws for temple worship. You know, what foods you could eat or not eat, what clothes you could wear or not wear, that sort of thing. That's what's being described here. And this wouldn't be a problem for Jewish Christians because they've grown up their entire lives following customs like these. It's a part of their culture. It's a normal aspect of their way of life already. But what about for Gentiles? You know, they come from all different sorts of cultures that don't practice these things. And so again, the question is, do they need to start practicing them in order to be saved? Or phrased another way, do Gentiles need to become Jewish to become Christian? That's the debate, essentially. Do these Gentiles who believe the gospel need to transform their lives and start living culturally, culturally like Jews, practicing circumcision, not eating some foods, not wearing some clothes, and all those types of things? Do they need to start living like Jews in order to be saved? And you can probably guess, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself in the passage, but the answer is ultimately no. And we'll talk more about why that's the answer, what's the reasoning, why it's worth having a counsel over the issue. But for now, suffice it to say, you don't have to become Jewish to be saved. You don't have to become like any culture to be saved. This passage and the council is showing us that Christianity and the gospel rise above any one culture or nation or people group. It is for Jew and Gentile alike. And that's good news for us as mostly non-Jews, I assume. We don't have to become Jewish culturally to become Christians. We can still remain a part of whatever culture we come from. We can still remain Asian or white or black or whatever. This passage and decision is also useful for when people try to argue with Christians about inconsistency, obeying some parts of scriptures but not others. And this usually comes up when talking about sexual ethics. Someone might say, well, why do you believe God cares about this, that, and the other regarding sex, but you still wear clothes with mixed fabrics or eat shellfish? Isn't that hypocritical? No, it's not. Go straight to Acts 15. Right here in the Bible itself, it teaches that we don't have to keep the civil and ceremonial laws of Moses. Those were for a specific people during a specific time, but their observance has faded away. You know, food and fabrics were from the civil and ceremonial law. Sex was from the moral law, and they should not be conflated. One more thing to consider from this dis dissension. We probably all naturally agree with the decision that Gentiles don't need to become Jewish to become Christians. And my guess is that we also agree that no one needs to become our culture, whatever it is. No one needs to become our culture to become Christian. But we should ask ourselves, are there ways we still sort of carry out the spirit of the men from Judea or those from the party of the Pharisees in our passage? You know, maybe not so explicit as do this cultural thing or you aren't saved, but maybe more subtle. You know, what might be some cultural things that make insiders and outsiders among us? Are there ways we maybe make certain cultural practices that come naturally to us barriers to those who come from different cultures or for whom their practices are not so natural. You know, the church, the body of Christ, 
It's like an embassy of heaven. And you know how embassies work, right? Like when I was doing missions overseas, I was living most of my days around people who were totally different from me culturally. I was on foreign soil. But every once in a while, I might attend some sort of event put on at the United States Embassy for that country. And when you're at the embassy, you're not on foreign soil anymore. The embassy is actually considered American soil. And the people there, they're Americans. And so there's this immediate connection and camaraderie just by the shared culture and nationality of being American. And, you know, the people are from all different sorts of states. We root for different American sports teams. We probably have different political views. But none of that really matters. These are my people. We're Americans. The church is like that, except not for any earthly country. The church is an embassy of heaven. It's for citizens of heaven. You know, there's actually an American flag hidden behind this curtain over here. And uh, do you know why I put it behind the curtain? It's behind the curtain because this isn't America right now. This is heaven. And don't get me wrong, I love America. I was born and raised here. I root for the United States in the Olympics and the World Cup, celebrate the 4th of July, like eating hot dogs and drinking beer and blowing stuff up. But for Christian worship, I make sure that the flag is behind the curtain because this isn't American soil right now. It's not Korean soil right now. It's not Indonesian soil right now. It's not Chinese soil right now. It's not the soil of any nation or country or people. This is heaven. This is heavenly soil. This church, this worship service, it's an embassy of heaven. So we must continually ask ourselves, if we're ever carrying out the spirit of the circumcision party or the Pharisees from our passage, are we ever flying earthly flags higher than the flag of heaven when we gather as a church? Are we ever raising earthly cultural practices above the virtues of the heavenly country? Are we putting up any cultural barriers that leave out citizens of heaven who have just as much right to stand on this heavenly soil with us? Because Jesus died for people from every nation, from every culture, from every people group. Not just Israel, not just Jews, not just your people, not just my people, every people and culture. So that's what the Jerusalem Council concluded in our passage. The gospel was for Jew and Gentile alike. We should not make the Gentiles become like us, Jewish That's what the Jerusalem Council concluded. And that takes us to our second point, the council. In uh, The Lord of the Rings, both the book and the movie, there is a problem that arises that has implications for the entire world. What to do with the one ring, the ring that rules them all. You know, even though the ring is in their possession, as long as the ring is out there, it poses a risk. And so to solve this problem, they call a council, the Council of Elrond. And uh, it's a meeting with Gandalf and Bilbo and several others to decide the fate of the ring. And over the course of the meeting, you know, different ideas and viewpoints were shared. But eventually, it was agreed upon. Simply hiding the ring is not an option. It's too dangerous. Someone in a future generation was sure to find it and use it for evil. It must be destroyed. And the only way to destroy it was by taking it to Mordor and Mount Doom. 
So Frodo and eventually the rest of the Fellowship of the Ring assembled to accomplish the task once and for all. That's what was decided at the Council of Elrond. That's what councils do. You know, a problem is presented and then a solution is decided by the council. In our passage, the controversy over whether Gentiles must adopt customs of Moses, like circumcision, was ultimately acted upon by a council. Verse 2 says, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of, uh, some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Verse 6 says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So apostles and elders gathered in Jerusalem to consider the matter. Paul and Barnabas were there. Peter was there. James was there and more. But what was the big deal? Why couldn't they just agree to disagree? You know, all right, you guys can make people adopt the customs of Moses if you want to, but we're not going to. You know, why did they have to go through the trouble of gathering all the big names in early Christianity and You know, make them take a week off of work, book flights, find an Airbnb in Jerusalem. You know, why go through all the trouble of having this council? It's because the core of the gospel was at stake. How one is saved was at stake. What will be taught throughout the world about joining the people of God was at stake. Either you have to be circumcised and keep the customs of Moses to be saved, or you don't, and you're saved by grace through faith. But it can't be both. One is right and one is wrong. One is orthodox and one is heretical. One is Christianity and one is something else entirely. And so what did they decide? Again, no surprise to you that they agree. It's salvation by grace through faith. You don't need to be circumcised or keep the customs of Moses to be saved. And here's how they reasoned it out. You know, the council began with uh, much debate. That's what verse 7 says. There was much debate, which might make us a bit uncomfortable, right? We don't really like to debate, especially within the church, but sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes debate is necessary, especially as it relates to doctrines that strike at the core of our faith. And so they began with some debate. But then eventually Peter stood up and he gave a speech, which begins in verse 7 and goes to verse 11. And I'll just handpick a few key phrases from that. First, In verse 8, Peter says, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. We have the same Holy Spirit within us as they do, Jew and Gentile, same Holy Spirit. Or verse 9, he says, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. We Jews have all these rituals that signify cleansing, but they're actually not how we're cleansed. Even we Jews are cleansed by faith, ultimately. Jew and Gentile alike are cleansed by faith. And then finally, in verse 11, Peter concludes, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Again, Just as we are saved by grace as Jews, Gentiles are saved by grace. Same spirit, same cleansing by faith, same salvation by grace. And apparently it was sort of a mic drop moment. Uh, This wasn't in our passage, but in verse 12 it says that the whole assembly fell silent after Peter's speech. Eventually Paul and Barnabas start to share with the council what God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then after that, James speaks. And he says, 
that the prophets testify to the same thing that Peter, Paul, and Barnabas have been saying. And he quotes from Amos 9, 11 through 12, one of the prophets. And it's just one of the many places he could have quoted from the Old Testament prophets that testified to God's intent to bring the Gentiles into his people, to save Gentiles and not Jews only. That was always the plan. The prophets said this. People from all nations, not just Jews, all nations. And then James concludes in verse 19, again, not in our sermon text, but between the gap. James says in verse 19, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. They don't need to be circumcised to be saved. They don't need to keep the customs or laws of Moses to be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith. And that should be no surprise to you, right? We all knew that that was where this passage was heading, right? Salvation by grace through faith. You don't need to keep the customs of Moses. You already knew that. And do you know why you already knew that? Because the Jerusalem council happened. That's part of the purpose of councils, to settle matters for future generations so you don't have to debate or work them out over and over again. You know, a new context arose. How do we handle Gentiles joining the people of God in such large numbers? Do they need to follow the law of Moses to be saved? No. Okay, then. That settles it. Let's move on. That's what the Jerusalem council accomplished. And you know, the church has applied this approach throughout its history, actually. There have been several ecumenical councils throughout church history that have operated in a similar way to the Jerusalem Council, and these councils have blessed us who have come along later in church history. Now, one difference, though, to be clear about, the Jerusalem Council had capital A apostles present, and it's witnessed to in Scripture, God's Word, and so the Jerusalem Council has an authority and a settledness that later church councils don't intrinsically have, um, you know, the, the Westminster Assembly, when the Westminster Divines uh, met in the uh, 17th century, uh, they had a council of sorts where they wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Larger and Shorter Catechism. In their Confession of Faith that they wrote, they acknowledged this limitation, which applies to themselves even. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, all synods or councils since the apostles' time, whether general or particular, may err. And many have erred. And so councils could be an error since the apostles' time. They don't share the authority of the apostles or scripture. But even so, several of the councils throughout church history have helped future generations tremendously by working through theological problems and coming to a conclusion so we don't have to work through them again. A couple examples. Council of Nicaea. Jesus is fully divine. Settled. Council of Constantinople. Jesus is fully human. The Holy Spirit is fully divine, settled. Council of Chalcedon. Christ is one person with two natures, the hypostatic union, divinity and humanity in one person, without confusion, without change, without separation, without division, settled. We don't have to rehash these theological questions again. They've been settled. I mean, you could, just for fun, I suppose, or if you really want to debate with these councils, you have every right to try. They don't have the authority of Scripture, the apostles. They could be an heir. But let me just save you some time. They're not. Even in our denomination, we still put councils into practice today to some extent, which should be a comfort to you. You belong to a denomination that is active and involved in working through tough theological problems. 
You know, we belong to a region of churches called a presbytery, which belongs to a nationwide body called the General Assembly, and we still consistently devote some of our work to solving theological problems. Mostly, the theology stays the same. It's the application that requires work because the context within which we apply Scripture is constantly changing. And so, you know, what is a theologically sound approach to race and racism or LGBTQ issues or abortion or pornography or abuse or a global pandemic? Sometimes we have to conclude that the church has failed in history to deal with these faithfully, as our denomination did a few years ago when it repented of racism in our denomination's history. Sometimes we're just in uncharted territory figuring out things for the first time, like remote worship during a pandemic. And so councils today, councils throughout church history, and of course the Jerusalem Council with the apostles, are an important way that God cares for you and guides you. It's an important way that he cares for his church and instructs us and settles theological problems, settles matters of doctrine and application. The Jerusalem Council eventually came to a conclusion. They answered the theological question, and they gave guidance on practical application by writing a letter to the Gentile believers and communicating it, along with their care and love for them. And that takes us to our final point, the accord. In the musical Hamilton, I think it's been long enough since I mentioned Hamilton. In the musical Hamilton, there's a popular song called The Room Where It Happened, sung by Aaron Burr's character, about the compromise of 1790. Because he was not in the room where it happened, he wishes that he were, but he wasn't. And so he doesn't know what happened. But somehow, someway, Alexander Hamilton and his political rivals, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, came to an accord behind closed doors. They agreed that, on the one hand, the federal government would take on states' debts, as Hamilton wanted, and, number two, that the capital of the United States would move from its temporary location in New York City to the District of Columbia in the south and closer to Virginia, as Jefferson and Madison wanted. Whatever else may or may not have happened, we and Aaron Burr don't know, but at the end of the day, Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison came to an accord. After debating the issue, the members of the Jerusalem Council came to an accord. They agreed on the answer to the theological question, and they agreed on what actions should be taken. And so they write a letter to the Gentiles, and they send it with Paul and Barnabas, who are a part of the initial dispute. But they also send along two more men, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, different Judas than the Gospels, the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas also. And they sent these men to reinforce the unity of the letter. You know, we're not just sending Paul and Barnabas with a letter to appease you. We're sending even more of us so that you can know for sure we all agree on the letter. And, you know, you were probably troubled before by those saying you had to be circumcised. You probably felt like disunity was being sowed. And so we're sending Judas and Silas so that you can know for sure that though we're geographically separated, we are united with you. And so they deliver the letter, and this is what it says, starting in verse 25, going through 29. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth. 
For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from all that has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, after hearing that letter, you might have a couple questions. I thought they weren't going to put any burdens on them, but then they require four things of them. What's going on there? Well, first of all, it is clear that the conclusion of the council was that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised to be saved or to keep any of the rest of the law of Moses to be saved. That's clear. That burden has been lifted. They don't need to be troubled by circumcision or the customs of Moses as it relates to salvation. But then what's going on with the requirements that they list in the letter? The four requirements, which are to abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what had been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Well, one of the requirements, as I'm sure you noticed, was unlike the other three, the last one, sexual immorality. And so I'll just address that one first. They asked them to, ad- to abstain from sexual morality because most likely the Gentiles don't practice a very high standard of sexual purity. And so they needed to be reminded and corrected gently that their sexual immorality was out of line with the moral law. It was not in step with the gospel. So that's sexual morality. But what about the other three? You know, abstaining from what had been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what had been strangled. They were essentially asking them not to eat these things. Don't eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. Don't eat meat, which still has blood in it. And uh, don't eat meat from an animal that's been strangled, because it would still have blood in it. Kind of saying the same thing twice almost. Um, And these were things that came from the ceremonial cleanliness laws that Jews still observed. So wait a minute. What is going on here? Didn't they just tell Gentiles that they didn't have to observe the ceremonial cleanliness laws? How does it make sense for them to then ask them to abstain from these things? Well, this wasn't in the sermon text, uh, but chapter 15, verses 20 and 21 of the same chapter uh, is where James suggests that they ask the Gentiles to abstain from these things. And he gives a reason there. Uh, And the reason that he gives is that there are Jews in every city with these Gentiles. And so the reason that he gives isn't scriptural or theological or ethical. It's contextual. It's practical. It's familial. Essentially what they're saying is, you Gentiles don't have to obey the ceremonial law to be saved. You don't need to feel guilt or shame or a lack of confidence in your salvation for not observing the customs of Moses but you will be in contact with and in relationship with Jewish Christians who do observe these things. And if there's any hope of growing in unity, you, would you please go out of your way to avoid eating these things? Because you're going to want to eat together with these Jewish Christians, right? But if you eat with them and eat these things, you're going to cause your Jewish brothers and sisters to stumble. It's going to make their hearts hurt to see you do that. Before God, you have every right to eat these things, but for the sake of unity, would you give up your right to do so? And how do the Gentiles respond to this letter with these four requirements? Verse 31. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced. They were encouraged by it. They didn't feel like more burdens were being placed on them. They felt the burdens being lifted. They didn't feel disunity. 
They felt unity. They had all come to one accord, Jews and Gentiles alike. You know, this is the gospel we all believe, that Jesus Christ died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins, but God raised him. And through Christ, Jew and Gentile alike are saved by grace through faith. For the Jews, they're free to keep practicing the customs of Moses, circumcision and all, but they must not treat such practices as a matter of salvation. They're cultural, they can be meaningful, but they do not save. For the Gentiles, they do not need to adopt circumcision or the laws of Moses to be saved, but please, for the sake of unity, would you give up a small number of freedoms and rights concerning food offered to idols and meat with blood so that you can have fellowship with your Jewish brothers and sisters. And it seems like the Gentiles' response to this was a joyful yes. We would love nothing more than to have this fellowship, and we gladly give up these rights if that's what makes it possible. Doesn't it almost catch you off guard just how easily the Gentiles are rejoicing and encouraged about a letter that asks them to give up their freedoms and rights? You know, we don't tend to operate that way very naturally, Because in our day and age and in American society, freedom and individual rights tend to be our highest values. When we're asked to give up personal freedoms or rights, we often resist without even thinking about it. But a community cannot live united without everyone giving up some of their rights and freedoms. If everyone insists on their individual rights and freedoms, a community can't survive. I mean, if you take individualism, individualism to its logical conclusion, you get isolation and then loneliness and then alienation. To remain a part of a community, you have to give up your rights and freedoms sometimes. And so what rights or freedoms do you or would you have a difficult time giving up? You know, the Gentiles probably liked eating meat that still had the blood, but they were willing to say, I'd rather eat dinner with you than have my medium-rare steak alone. What might be something similar for you? You know, what if New Life hires a different pastoral candidate than you prefer? Or what if a church event is on a different day than you prefer? Or starts at a different time than you prefer? What if a ministry you prefer gets cut while a ministry you don't prefer remains? Are you ready to give up your freedoms or rights or preferences for the sake of of unity for the sake of being of one accord. You know, Jesus gave up his to be united with you. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 6, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is God and has all the freedoms and rights and privileges of being God, but he didn't grasp onto them. Instead, he gave up those freedoms and rights and privileges. He became human. He humbled himself. He became a servant to the point of death on a cross. He even gave up his preferences, which is an understatement to say the least. In the Garden of Gethsemane, facing his death on the cross, he prayed, Father, if there is any other way, I would prefer for this cup to pass from me. That would be my preference, Father. Is there any other way? Of course, the answer that came back was no. There is no other way. Jesus had the choice between living and losing you or dying and keeping you, and he chose to die. He said, I'd rather live than die, but even more so, I'd rather keep you than lose you. And so he died. 
Jesus gave up his freedoms and rights and preferences to keep you. And so let us also be willing to give up ours to keep one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because otherwise we could not be saved. We admit, Father, that there are ways we try to save ourselves. We also admit that even sometimes as people who do believe in grace, salvation by grace alone, we tend to make cultural preferences too high of barriers for fellowship. Forgive us for these things, fathers. Point us to your Son, who made all this possible, who gave up his rights to have us. Let that fill our hearts with joy and encouragement and a willingness to give up our, our rights for one another. We pray this, Father, in your name. Amen.